You are listening to the Religica Theo Lab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. This is Michael Retrice, director of the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University, and you're listening to our Religica Theo Lab. And today, I'm speaking with Kamran Shazad, who's the director at the Islamic Foundation for Ecology and Environmental Sciences. Kamran is the Climate Change and Sustainability Executive for the Bahu Trust. We're going to learn about that. It's a network of 22 mosques in the United Kingdom. He's also, as I mentioned, the director for the Islamic Foundation for Ecology and Environmental Sciences. And he serves on the Civil Society and Youth Council Advisory Board for the presidency of COP26. He's recently been appointed to the Multi-Faith Advisory Council to the United Nations Interagency Task Force on Religion and Sustainable Development. And today we are talking about, fundamentally, simplicity, modesty, and humility as a kind of spiritual transformation. But getting there in this conversation about how we understand our fundamental connection to the environment is well worth the trip. And I encourage you to take a listen. Well, why don't we begin today, Kamran, with your story, how you came to be interested in the care for the environment. I should say, I mentioned to you earlier, I'm from New Mexico in a, in a part of the country in the United States where we didn't have as much access to water as you would have in other parts of the country or the world. There's just simply so little of it. And as an impact of that, you had a, you know, we developed a sense of value for water as a essential resource in our lives. That was a catalyst for me when I think about why I became you know, more closely connected to environmental concerns. What's a catalyst for you or what is your story about care for the environment around us? It's quite interesting. My catalyst is quite fragmented. I've had two or three experiences that really made me think, hey, I need to focus on this. Growing up in a city of Birmingham, United Kingdom, very urban city. I've grown up in an area called Sparkbrook, which is, I would say, classed as one of the most socially deprived areas in the country. Naturally, I mean, looking back, I hadn't realized this at the time, but looking back now, I was always drawn to nature. So I would enjoy playing in the park, in the trees, climbing trees amongst the wood. I enjoyed being around water. So I've always had this fascination. But I think my biggest sort of um, mind change moment, there were two incidents in particular. One in a previous role, I used to be director for a faith-based NGO. What was the name of that one, that NGO? Um, it was Islamic Help. Okay. Islamic Help, uh, based in the UK. Uh, it's one of the largest Muslim NGOs. So um, I was a director for the international program. So actually, I would um, spend all the money. And it was uh, in Africa, where in East Africa, in Tanzania, you know, in a certain region, we were digging loads of boreholes and wells to provide water to the villagers. And after, and we were spending, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars on that. But then only to find out a year later or two years later, these water wells were drying up. And uh, we are doing research. Why is it? Because it's, it's faulty. But it came down to, it was because the aquifers were drying up. And when we look into it further, it's because there's mass deforestation taking place. And that for me was this moment of, and you, we need to be focusing on the environmental degradation. We need to be tackling uh, loss of environmental issues and trees, etc. 
So there was that, and it was the same for farming projects. People weren't able to grow their food properly because there wasn't biodiversity and so there wasn't pollination. Same with livelihood. You would give people livelihoods and there wasn't enough of an environmental structure for it to maintain. So it got me thinking so much about how much of our work needs to focus around environmental sustainability. So that was going through my mind. And this, I would say, was around the early 2000s, in that sort of decade. Separately to that, I had gone through a trauma in my life, which I was struggling with mentally, having some mental health issues, depression. And I'd also was having a huge faith crisis. Is there God? Is he happy with me? Does he like me? Am I angry? Do I not have faith? All sorts of things. But I was annoyed. I was angry. And there was all sorts. And it was somebody in Tanzania, actually, somebody from the indigenous communities who we were working with, who really helped me reconnect with God and with my religion through ecological spirituality. Me just be at ease around trees and the villages and just taking everything. And that really helped. I think this person's mentorship helped. And then there was one particular example. And if you know Tanzania well, there's the island of Zanzibar. And below that, you have the island of Mafia, Mafia Island, very small uh, island. And we were doing some work there at the time and uh, traveling to the very little islands. And we'd come back. I was on the beach, come off my boat. We were tired. I was sitting, waiting for somebody else on the beach. And a local fisherman on his canoe had just landed. He'd picked up his catch for the day and he walked onto the sand on the beach and he started praying. You know, the way Muslims pray, we, they do the ablution. He, and then he went into prostration. And that, I think, for me was the eureka moment because I hadn't realized the moment he had put his head on the ground in prostration, I thought he's praying to God and he's making a connection between him and the earth in prostration. And one of the big conditions of prayer for Muslim is that your area has to be clean and pure. And we normally refer to that as a prayer mat. And that was a huge eureka moment for me because I thought, this is my connection with God through the earth. And all these experiences really bought for me what I needed to now focus on, that it would now become my, I don't like to use the word mission, but um, it sounds very religious, <laughs> um, but it would become my purpose in life to make sure that I continue to work for environmental protection and conservation. And that's where I want my life kind of focused on. You know, those catalysts, I imagine for the listener, there's a corollary between your experience in Tanzania and also the experience you just identified, where we may all feel like we drill those holes down to find those sources that should be naturally welling up, but discover that they dried out. And I, you know, your question, your, your comments about interconnection and ecological spirituality make me think there's also a kind of spiritual biodiversity that's a corollary to what we see in the world. Let me maybe just explain that quickly. The sense is everything's connected, as you've identified. And the moment we start to presume that something is not integrated, we lose our hold on what a deeper kind of sustainability in the world can be. 
and what the sustainability is for ourselves spiritually. And I'm just so um, really moved by this image of prostration, that sense of connection to the earth, connection to God. And there's a question I'd like to ask you about, really, you've made a number of comments about the gifts of Islam in terms of how we understand our close connection to creation, which is inherently involving one's spiritual connection to God. Like, those two don't exist in distinction from one another. As you mentioned, this crisis, you know, coming through this recognition, there's if it's all going to work, it has to be integrated. The religion of Islam inherently environmental in terms of showing concern for creation all around us. And, and if so, I'd like to hear just your thoughts on this and how this is important for Muslims, but it, like with every religion, it's a gift to the world, right? There's something all of us can learn about an Islamic self-understanding of our connection to God and the earth. Could you just spend a few more minutes on that as a theme and kind of help the listener to know more about that? Yes, I agree. I do believe Islam is inherently environmental. I also believe that not just with Islam, all of the faiths, we've all moved away. I mean, in the term environmental is an innovation. It's a new term. And we've become very modern and materialistic, even in our the way we practice. And so we've lost that spiritual connection with what's around us, the interconnectedness. Now, as a Muslim, I've grown up in a religious environment. I went to mosque all the time. I was in madrasa, I, you know, full to after school. I spent another six hours in the mosque. So my whole environment has been around the mosque and the after school classes. And I hadn't realized how environmental Islam was, although you do kind of know, you don't make the connection. So, for instance, I'll just give you some very basic examples. When we think of paradise, what do we think of? We think of gardens, trees. Yeah, kind of ethereal, certainly connected, but somehow also very natural. There aren't a lot of plastics around in that space, are there? Yeah. Now, in reality, we can never comprehend what God is, who he is, what he looks like, and what paradise looks like. So in our feeble minds, he has described it in the Quran in a garden format. So that's God describing what he believes for or what he wants us to believe is the most beautiful of creations, nature, water, birds, trees. And I hadn't realized this. Same with other stories, for instance, Noah's Ark. You know, the lesson we take from prophet Noah, peace be upon him, that if you don't believe in God, you know, God will send a flood and start all over again. But God asked Noah to take care of all the animals. And there's a huge lesson in that, that it's nature that sustains the planet. So all these started becoming more and more apparent. Every time now I'd pick up something in my faith, I'd immediately relate it to nature. Like the prostrations story I told you. The Quran, I mean, so many chapters in the Quran are named after naturistic features in the world. And I can give you many, many examples. But ultimately, you know, we we have our main belief as Muslims is the concept of Tawheed, which means the oneness of Allah, the oneness of God. And ultimately, everything is from him and goes back to him. This planet is from God. He's created it for us. So what we have is what we call an amana, a responsibility. It's like you've given me something to look after. If I'm your friend and I have love and respect for you, I will take care of it and give it back to you. And it's the same with the planet. So 
if you can do that well, you become closer to your creator. I like to tell my friends and people I'm working with that you can't be close to the creator if you can't be close to his creation. And that's where the interconnectedness of us all is so important because we're all part of that creation in equal measure. I think across religions that whether one is practicing a particular faith tradition or spiritual tradition or not, inevitably humans understand what disconnected space feels like when we feel like we're just out of sync with the world around us, whether it's internally or externally. You've identified this as a crisis. I I think a number of our listeners would understand that. Is the aim of, do you think, generally speaking, religiously, and then and then reflecting on Islam, is the aim fundamentally about bridging connections between ourselves, our communities, the transcendent divine or God? And if we're not able to do that at a time where we experience environmental degradation, what's the biggest existential threat for us? It's a very deep question. I'd be lying if I told you I had the answer to that. I can also tell you I'm trying to figure out the answer to that. Who is it we need to be connected with? How far do we go with that connection? And at what gains and at what loss do we focus on those interconnection? I have quite often battled with what my role is on earth. Is it to save the world? Is it to work with my community and bring them? Is it just to focus on my family? Is it to focus? And I can never pinpoint an answer because you end up being dragged into different issues because it's not climate change is one of the issues. Yes, it is an overarching issue, but we have wars and conflicts. We have mental health issues. We have so many things. And where do you put your efforts into? And again, I'd be lying if, you know, I told you I don't, you know, I sleep well because we don't, we're human at the end of the day. You know, we do struggle. However, what has made it easier, I finally come to this school of thought now that at some point I'm going to die and I will become part of the earth again, but my soul will go to heaven or be in the court of God. And I will be questioned, what did you do? And as long as I can look back and answer that I kept fighting the good fight, I kept striving for justice, I kept standing up for everything that you created for us, I would be content with that, whether I achieved it or not. And if I'm able to reflect on that on my deathbed and be able to look my children in the eye to say, look, I carried on fighting for your future. I did everything I could for you then I would die happy. I hope that answers, especially in a sense, because it is difficult to place yourself in any particular, well, maybe I'm in that journey, maybe in five years' time, I'll be able to pinpoint even more. I think it's uh, where a lot of people are right now. I absolutely uh, resonate with what you said. And I also think this pandemic, which is, of course, more than just a virus, is a kind of a pandemic age, as some of our scholars in our center are referring to it, is inclusive of a lot of the pressures and external challenges, some of which you've identified, mental health being one of them, environmental and biodiversity challenges, for instance, the nature crisis, as Sir David Attenborough calls it. And we're seeing the inequalities, and we're talking about the inequalities, 
but we still don't seem to be doing anything about it. You know, we in the various conferences and uh, the discourse is we need to tackle the climate injustice. As you mentioned, David Attenborough, he called it the climate apartheid. But we're seeing, for, for instance, with vaccinations, it's still the Western and the more richer countries who are hoarding and taking all the vaccinations rather than giving it to the countries who need it. And I think this, unfortunately, this, this will also continue into climate injustices. Well, it's not a surprise, right? And knowing the human condition as it is, which religions have different perspectives on, but really never undervalue the role of avarice, ambition, and greed, that there are ways in which essential products get hoarded. It's interesting to me because I know that sustainability and resilience, you've mentioned sustainability already, has been key to your own work and how you're framing our connection to the environment. And it's just makes me mindful that there are no petroleum-based products in heaven. I say it that way because I wonder if our collective imagination for how we perceive the best of our humanity here in this world and the best of what may to come for those who genuinely aspire to an afterlife, that there's a sense in which when we talk about sustainability or resilience can we imagine it in some form dislocated from the corruption and wear and tear we've already placed on the planet? Look, the way in which we think about sustainability involves many of the same things that we have used to create havoc on the planet, such as petroleum-based products. So what does sustainability and resilience, as you refer to those terms, in the work you've done with Bahu Trust and in your own work, but I think also in the way you're describing it, where people live in our families and our communities and ourselves, what does that sustainability and resilience refer to in your life and in your work? You mentioned the word greed earlier, and I hope I don't get in trouble from your listeners. We've become a nation of greed by default, and we don't even know it. And we've seen it during the pandemic. When we think there's a shortage of something, we will go out and buy as much, and we don't care about the other person. We've also, um, I mean, children now are born with phones and the internet. They've never seen a life without internet. And for them, everything is on tap. Whilst when me or you grew up, we had to work hard and you know plan for something if we wanted it and and i don't when i use the word greed i don't think people mean to be greedy it's just how we've become we consumerism and consuming things makes us happy and that's what we see as form of and so what we wanted to do at the bahu trust so the bahu trust to explain to our listeners is a mosque headquarters based in birmingham and they have 22 mosques around the country it's set up after the inspiration comes from Sultan Bahu, a 16th century Sufi saint. And so part of the mosque was my laboratory, in a sense, behavior change laboratory. All the things that I'm learning at university outside, let me see if we can get a congregation to change the way. Because ultimately, before we do anything, we can create many projects but we have to bring about a spiritual transformation, get people to understand why they're doing it from a theological perspective, and then show them how to do it practically. So at the Bahu Trust, we started first with imams training. 
So we, we developed very specific training for our imams on climate change. And we use the GROW model. Have you ever heard of the I GROW have. model? Yes. So for those who are not aware, G stands for goal, R for reality, O for options, and W for will. It's a very basic model for behavior change. And the G is the goal. So what does God want from you? What's your purpose in life? And so we get our imams doing a discourse on the various different chapters and verses in the Quran around environmentalism. So they're discussing, debating, talking with each other, and they're very in friendly, friendly terms competing. But what that becomes is peer-to-peer learning. So they're learning from each other, empowering each other. Then the R is the reality. Okay, what is the problem here? When we do our training, we don't talk about the wider picture. We don't talk about climate change or about carbon footprints. We focus locally so that they can see when we're talking about an issue, they can picture it in their mind, the local river, the food places, the food waste. And then for them, that's where the ping moment comes because they've just spoken about the Quran and everything the Quran is saying. And then what's happening locally? And then they're thinking, actually, you know what? We're not following what the Quran says. And then after that, we go on to hear suggestions from them, ideas, and then pledges. So we start there because the imams are the change makers. When they speak from the pulpit, they are very powerful. And the way that training is, it's it's embedded into them rather than forced into them. So they speak passionately. And when they speak passionately, people feel it more. And then since then, we've gone on the mosques now have solar panels. 20 of the 22 mosques have solar energy. The madrasa, I believe we're the only madrasa in the country, if not Europe, that has Islam and the environment in their syllabus. We do plastic-free campaigns. In fact, the mosque, I'd like to say we've banned plastic use completely, a single-use plastic, but I'd be lying if I said that because it's just not possible for us to ban it completely for various reasons. Our imams talk about these things. Our imams even pray for people impacted by climate change. And more importantly, we've gained accreditation for uh, United Nations Environment Programme and for the uh, UNFCCC, the United Nations Framework for Climate Change. So we're involved in consultation and the negotiations at COP. And you will think, well, why does a mosque need these accreditations? You're only there for worship. Because for two reasons. The first one is whenever you try to promote lifestyle change, there's always legal or structural barriers for you to be able to do them further to have a bigger impact. So you have to be involved in campaigning and advocacy and calling for wider change in legislation and policy. But also because a big part is calling for climate justice is part of our worship. And so being part of these things is just as important as praying and doing other things. And so what we're trying to do is bring about a spiritual transformation, you know, that we we get people that if they're doing eco-friendly facts, they're not doing it just for the sake of because it's the in thing, it's a fashionable thing to do. They're doing it as part of their God consciousness, what we refer to as taqwa. Every act is to make them be closer to God. Every act that they're doing, every time they're doing something to safeguard the environment, 
they're pleasing God and they're getting brownie points. So I'll, I'll give you an example, if you don't Please. mind. Like we become, we consume in the name of religion. So before we pray, we do ablution with water. We wash ourselves five times a day. So we've taught our congregation now how to reduce your water because the teachings in Islam is don't waste water when doing your ablution. But even going further, when you bring your car into the mosque to pray, you're polluting other people's lungs before going in and washing yourself. So it's important to realize the, the hypocrisy, in a sense, that if there's God consciousness in you, because when we wash, we prepare ourselves to present ourselves in the court of God. We want to spiritually cleanse ourselves. And that should include from the moment you get in your car, you release emissions from your car, you pollute everybody else. So we get people to think differently that when you cleaning yourself, that also refers to other people. That also means, you know, what you're breathing in, do as much possible for you to keep your entire environment clean. So those are just some examples how we're trying to bring about transformation. Well, I think it's compelling as well because... One of the questions, and perhaps the last question I want to ask you is about the necessary revolution in thought, and not just in thought cognitively, but, you know, in our approach existentially, how we engage the world, how we think about our own internal well-being, how we think about our relationship to God. And you have already identified so much of that. I just want to maybe take a moment to to re-clarify what I've heard, which is that spiritual transformation, which requires an emphasis on justice and prayer and meditation and a number of other ways of seeking a deeper, let's say, sustainability and community resilience, and perhaps even personal resilience, draws us to uh, this pequa, a deeper sense of God consciousness as a response to greed and consumption and kind of unhindered, even a frenzied level of consumption that we see now in society. I think the question I have about God consciousness in that regard is, it's such a different way you're describing of spiritual transformation because God consciousness isn't about consumption. It's very difficult for human beings to, especially now, particularly in the West perhaps, but to get our minds around the idea of relationship to the planet, to community, or to God that isn't transactional, that isn't somehow based on goods and services. But instead is something, I mean, there's a, I think there's a transformation that's required in that that is almost like skipping tracks that's required for how we live our, our lives. How would you respond to that? If we look at our founding faith leaders, be Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, Prophet Jesus, Buddha, Abraham, whoever, all the, there were three main values that they excelled in. And I also think if we can master those, we would have this, you know, provide the solution to all the problems we face today. That's simplicity, modesty, and humility. It's really simple. If we can master that, the climate crisis would go away. The wars and conflict would go away. Our connection with each other would become a lot closer, and we would be so much closer to God, in a sense. But that's the million-dollar question. Are we ready? Are we prepared to focus on those? And I think that's the biggest struggle of our time, is how much can we focus on always 
wanting, wanting, wanting more. And there's so many pressures around us to be transactional. It's always hard, even if I'll, I'll give you an example, to create an eco mosque, for instance, you don't need the latest technology. You just need to reduce what you would do in there. You know, you would your activities in a sense and use it for just your connection with God. So there's ways of dealing with things. And then the more simple we are, the less needs we have and the more simplistic we can become. But it's important that we're around people who are like that. And that's in short supply, Isn't I think, as we live in the world of modernity. Yes. And if you look at indigenous communities, they live within simple means. They may be in poverty, but they don't have poverty of the heart or mind, you know, and they're happy and they're content to some degree. In a society where there's always want, 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 we're never happy there's always more, more, more that we want. You know, as the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, says, you know, if you give a person a mountain of gold, he wants another. So, yeah, I, I think for me, simplicity, modesty and humility is the answer to so many of our problems. I think uh, of the beginning of our conversation and your reference to your own personal catalyst for spiritual transformation, reflecting on the images you saw on the beach in Tanzania. And I imagine that the terms that come to me for describing that experience have very much to do with simplicity, modesty, and humility. And I would think for the listener, we all have that capacity to reflect, to go into a space that isn't consumed first with consumerism. And to see those three qualities you just identified once more as not a place of poverty, but of potential richness and a deeper sense of consciousness that is required if we're going to address the multiple crises in the world, you might agree. And gratefulness. You know, he, he was happy with his catch for the day, and he just prostrated himself because he has something to eat. So yes, I think you've summed that up really well. We'll end on gratitude. Uh, I'm with Kamran Shazad. Thank you very much for the time today. Thank you very much, Michael. It's a pleasure speaking to you. You've been listening to the Religica Theolab podcast in the Center for Ecumenical and Interreligious Engagement at Seattle University. To learn more about the center's work and for resources to be used in local communities, visit us at seattleu.edu slash the center.